Amen. All right, we're there in Luke chapter 21. And of course, we've been going through the gospel of Luke verse by verse, chapter by chapter for quite some time now. And uh, tonight we find ourselves here in Luke 21. And we're actually going to, we started Luke 21 a couple of services ago, sermons ago. And we're going to be in Luke 21 for a little bit because we're kind of in the, a little mini series here in Luke 21 on the subject of end times prophecy. And of course, Luke 21 is a passage in which the Lord Jesus Christ describes end times prophecy in detail. It's one of the passages in which he goes into this detail a lot, and we're studying through it. And we could just kind of go through it quickly and, and, and just make comments and be done with it, but I know that oftentimes when it comes to end times, people are really interested and they have a lot of questions, and it's some, some of the things in these uh, subjects are a little deep. So I like to maybe slow down a little bit and help you see it. For some of you who know a lot about these things, maybe it'll just be a review, and for some of you it might, might be uh, some newer things. If you notice there in Luke 21, this is not a passage uh, that we're going to cover tonight, but I just want you to look at verse 7 just to remind you the context. The context of Luke 21 is in verse 7 when the Bible says, And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And of course, that's the context, that's the questions, the two questions that are asked of the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads into this teaching. And of course, Luke 21, we know, is a parallel passage with Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And if you were here on a Sunday night, you remember that we went through and looked at what is commonly known as the tribulation period, and we saw the parallels between the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the book of Revelation, and really walk through the first four seals, seal number one of the Antichrist, seal number two of world war, seal number three of famines, seal number four of great death. And we saw how that was the period that is commonly referred to in the Bible as the tribulation period. And of course, we know that those are not the only seals. In fact, we're going to cover seal number five tonight, and then we'll cover seal number six at another time. But we learn from the Antichrist, seal number one, that the Antichrist steps onto the world stage as a political and military leader. We, of course, saw seal number two, world war, and we saw that as a result of the Antichrist going forth, conquering, and to conquer, a world war begins. We saw that as a result of the world wars, seal number three, there's massive famines throughout the world. Uh, as a result of the military conflicts, there's food shortages and inflation. And then we saw that there would be great death. And that would be because of war, because of famine, and because of natural disasters, because of pestilence. And, and, and we looked at all of that. Now, I want you to remember that we talked about the fact that even though this, the first three and a half years of the seven-year period, remember the, the pre-tribulation rapture teachers will falsely refer to this as the seven-year tribulation period, but that is an incorrect statement. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible ever say that there's a seven-year tribulation period. There is a seven-year period of the end times known as Daniel's 70th week, but that seven-year period is divided into two sections. The first three and a half years are what is known as the tribulation period. In Revelation, we saw that that was outlined by the six different seals. And then, of course, the last 
three and a half uh, years of that seven-week period, is known as God's wrath or the pouring out of God's wrath. And we saw how in Revelation that's outlined by the seven trumpets and also the seven vials. And then right in the middle of that seven-year period is, of course, the day of the Lord and the rapture. We're going to cover that next time uh, we are in the Gospel of Luke. The first four seals, and I'm, I'm giving a lot of review just because we're going to get into a lot of things tonight, and I just want to catch you up and, and refresh your, your memory. The first four seals are separated from the rest of the seals in the sense that they are characterized by the four horsemen of the apocalypse. If you remember, we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse. And those four horsemen are there to show us that these four seals, they go together. And the point that I'm making is this. There is a shift between the fourth seal and the fifth seal because the first four seals is a part of the six seals, but they are separate in the sense that they are set apart by the connection of the four horsemen. The fifth seal has no horsemen associated nor does the sixth seal, because there's a shift and a difference happens here. And here's what I want you to understand, and then we're going to jump into the material. Up to this point, the four horsemen have pretty much made the entire world miserable. What we've seen happening, what will happen in the end times, and what we've seen in these four seals has been really an attack on all of mankind. The Antichrist showing up and going forth, conquering and to conquer a world war, that engages the entire war and world, obviously is going to bring misery to the entire world. The famines, the earthquakes, the natural disasters, the pestilence, the great death, all of that is really just a time of trouble for the entire world. So I want you to understand that during that period of the first four seals, the Bible refers to that period as a tribulation period, and that is a time when everyone's miserable, all right? No one's going to be having a good time Really, it's just going to be a hard, difficult time for all of humanity. That's characterized by the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then when the fifth seal is open, this is what's now known as the Great Tribulation. So we go from the Tribulation period to the Great Tribulation period. This is where the abomination of desolation is set up. And this is where a shift happens where the focus goes from Satan bringing misery upon all mankind to focusing in on Christians and the persecution of believers. So hopefully that makes sense, and hopefully you remember all of that from the last time we were together, and we can jump in now at seal number five. And of course, in in Luke, they're not outlined by seals, but we'll see how that goes parallel with the teaching in uh, Revelation. In Luke 21 and verse 12, Jesus says this, and this is where we left off on Sunday night. But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you. And this is Jesus, of course, teaching the disciples about the coming persecution of believers. And I want you to notice here that Jesus is, he, he's been talking about the wars and, and kingdoms to rise against kingdom and the pestilence and the famines. He's been talking about those things. And now he says, but before all these, they shall lay their hands on you. And I, I want you to notice, and I'm not going to make a big deal about it right now, but it's going to be important for you to remember this later on in the sermon. I want you to notice how Jesus is speaking here, and he says, they shall lay their hands on you. And I want you to notice that word you is, is what we would refer to as Jesus speaking in the second person. And of course, when somebody is speaking and they say things like I or we, that is the first person. They're speaking to something that's going to happen to them. 
this will happen to us, or this is going to happen to me, or I'm going to go through this. That's the first person, because you are the one speaking. You're the first person. When you're speaking to somebody else, you'll say things like you, or in the Bible, ye. And that would be the second person, meaning the person you're speaking to, and you're making a reference of something that may happen to that individual. So he says, they shall lay their hands on you. And then when Jesus is speaking and he says the words they or them, I want you to understand that's the third person. That is not the person that he's speaking to, but he is speaking to the second person about the third person. I just want you to understand that. You should remember that probably from high school or whatever. But I want you to be aware of that because that's actually very important in this passage. Here in Luke 21, we're going to look at something that is actually very different in the Gospel of Luke than in Matthew and in Mark. When you're looking at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew and Mark, there is a different emphasis here in Luke 21. Though it's following the same outline, there's something else that is emphasized, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. So Jesus says, but before all these, they shall lay their hands on you, Jesus speaking to the disciples, second person, and persecute you, again, Jesus speaking to the disciples, second person, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And remember, when we are studying Bible prophecy, we always need to remember that always with Bible prophecy, other than like the book of Revelation, usually in Bible prophecy, there are dual fulfillments. There's usually something that will be fulfilled in the actual context in which it is being spoken, and then something in the future. And here in Luke 21, one of the reasons that Luke 21 can be a little difficult for people to understand when it comes to Bible prophecy is that unlike Matthew 24 and unlike Mark 13, Jesus is actually giving a prophecy here that has dual fulfillment. Some of these things are going to happen in 70 AD. And we saw the context there of Luke 21. Jesus begins this chapter by predicting the destruction of the temple, which actually happened in 70 AD. Of course, Jesus is living in like 33 AD, uh, 30 to 33 AD. So it happened just a few decades later. The reason that Luke emphasizes something a little different than Matthew 24 and Mark 13 is because of this dual fulfillment. Some of it has to do with Jerusalem in the next 20 to 30 years, and some of it has to do with Jerusalem in the end time. So that's why he says they're going to deliver you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Now we will be uh, persecuted in the end times, but we're probably not going to be brought before kings and rulers, and we're probably not going to be taken before synagogues. This might have been more of actually people that were going to be persecuted in the next 30 years that Jesus was speaking to. Notice there in verse 13. And it shall turn to you, and again, I just want you to notice the second person wording there, turn to you for a testimony, settle it therefore in your hearts. Now, this is something that's interesting, and I just want you to notice this, and I don't really have anything to say about it other than the fact that it's just a very interesting piece of instruction. Here, Jesus is telling his followers what they should do when they're being arrested and being brought before Uh, some sort of a judgment hall before a judge, before some sort of a court. He says, settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what ye shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. The word gainsay means to deny or contradict. The word resist means to withstand. And here's what Jesus is promising. He's promising that when you are brought before 
a hostile court in, in, in a sense of persecution that you don't have to worry about what you're going to say and to make sure that you've got your story straight because you've got the Holy Spirit of God. And at that moment, the Bible says that God is going to give you the words to say, he says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay, shall not be able to deny, shall not be able to contradict nor resist. So he tells his disciples there, don't worry about what you're going to say when you're being brought before these wicked people because God is going to give you the words to say and the things that you will say at those times are going to be amazing things that were really given to you by God and, and there are things that, that he wanted you to say at that moment. So, of course, this is about persecution, but there is an application here for those of you that uh, want to be uh, preachers or like to preach. And the idea is this, that you know we should be prepared, obviously, when I stand up to preach. I've taken time to prepare and write sermons and write ideas. But, you know, you also want to be careful when you preach of not just being this robotic, you know, just reading every word from a page. Because there is this thing called the Holy Spirit. And obviously, you don't want to take, people can take this to another extreme where, you know, some preachers are like, I never study, I just get up, and I let the Holy Spirit lead me. And, you know, whenever I've met a preacher like that, you know what I've noticed is every, every sermon sounds pretty much the same. Because there is, to an extent, you got to study and read. Look, the Holy Ghost is not going to give you new revelation. He's only going to speak of that which you already have read from the Word of God. So if all you've ever read is John 3.16, you're not given much to work with. So you've got to read the Bible, study the Bible, know what the Bible says. But then there also is this, to this extent, is you don't want to be so robotic in your preaching or gospel presentation out soul winning, where you want to give the Holy Spirit freedom to speak through you, not that he would give you new revelation, but speak through you the word of God that's already in your heart. And if you've never experienced it, it's an amazing thing. I mean, sometimes I've been out soul winning, and somebody asks me a question, and I just quote this verse to them, and I'm thinking to myself, where did that come? I've never even memorized that verse. Like, I, I mean, I, I know that verse, but that's crazy. And I, I try to quote it again, and I'm like, I can't even do it. And it's just like the Holy Spirit at that moment just gave me the words to say. And that's what Jesus is telling these individuals that will happen when you're being brought before these judges and before these things. But I believe it's more than that. I, I, I just think that as Christians, we should be sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God and allow the Holy Spirit to move us and allow the Holy Spirit to, to help us. And oftentimes, I found in preaching, oftentimes when people will come to me after a sermon and they'll say, man, this part of the sermon, was, and they'll, they'll, they'll say something that I said, and they're like, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And I think to myself, that wasn't even in my notes. Like, that's just something I said. I don't even know why I said that, you know, but the Holy Spirit knows why I said it, because you needed it, right? And it's the Holy Spirit of God. I've always thought about this. It's a mira- it really is a miracle. Every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, for example, tonight we've got 177 people here. It, it's, it's a miracle that one preacher could get up, say words, and 177 different people potentially receive it and learn something and be comforted and be encouraged and be exhorted in their individual way. Only God could do that. And it's just this amazing thing. So that's what we kind of see Jesus talking about here. He says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom with all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Notice verse 16. He says, and ye, again, second person, shall be betrayed. 
Notice he says you're going to be betrayed by both parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friend. And look, this is the society that we're living in. We live in a society today where the government is teaching and, and the government school system is teaching children to turn on their parents, to be more loyal to the government. This is what Jesus is referring to. We're being trained by our society to be more loyal to the government than to our own family and friends and neighbors. And some of you already have seen that even in your lives now because when you became a Christian and started living for God, all of a sudden your parents and your brethren and your kinsfolk and your friends uh, turned on you. But let me tell you something. The Bible says that there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And you've, you've got that friend in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've got that friend in other believers. But he says, and ye shall be betrayed there, verse 16, both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends. And of some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye, notice again the second person, ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not an hair of your, hair, of your head perish in your patience, possess ye your souls. Now keep your place there in Luke 21. That, that's obviously our text for tonight. But go with me, if you would, to the book of Revelation, just real quickly. Revelation chapter 6. And let's look how this compares or is parallel to the sixth, the fifth seal, excuse me, the fifth seal, which is the seal we're going to study tonight in this uh, end times outline. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. So Luke 21, Jesus just got done explaining to the disciples, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be brought before kings and rulers, and they're going to take you to prison, and, and I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. He says, they're going to persecute you, they're going to betray you, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. That's what Jesus just got done telling his disciples. Now notice how that is parallel to the fifth seal, Revelation 6 and verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, notice what the Bible says, I saw under the altar, this is John, of course, on the Isle of Patmos, seeing a vision of the end times. He says, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain, for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So I just want you to understand. The first seal is open. He says, I saw a white horse. The second seal is open. He says, I saw a red horse. The third seal is open. He says, I saw a black horse. The fourth seal is open. He says, I saw a pale horse. And he saw the Antichrist going forth, conquering and to conquer. He saw the, red, the, the, the rider of the red horse with a sword, and he took peace from the earth. He saw the rider of uh, the black horse with a pair of balances in his hand, and he brought famine upon the world. He saw the rider of the pale horse, and he said that, he that rode on him was death, and hell followed with him, and that they went out and they uh, brought death upon the earth. But then, when the fifth seal is open, he says, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. So the fifth seal is open, and all of a sudden, all these people are in heaven who just got slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Why? Because at the fifth seal, there is persecution. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, does thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed. Notice, notice this phrase. That should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So this is going to be a time of persecution. Now when it comes to the fifth seal, 
I want you to understand that the fifth seal is divided into two different sections. Both have to do with persecution. But first we have the first section of the fifth seal, which is persecution, which is what we've already seen. And then at the fifth seal, there's also the abomination that maketh desolate. And at the abomination that maketh desolate, now there's going to be great persecution. And there's going to be a major difference between the persecution before the abomination of desolation and the persecution after the abomination of desolation. Now, here's what I want you to understand. There will be persecution on both sides of the abomination of desolation. When the fifth seal is open, Christians are already dying. At that point, we're actually, if you're following along in our end times outline, we're still under the period known as the tribulation period. Right at the end of the tribulation period, Christians are going to be dying. But that does not mean that we're in the great tribulation yet. Because what takes us from the tribulation period into the great tribulation is the abomination of desolation. Go back to Luke 21. Keep your place there in Revelation. We're going to come back to it. Luke 21, look at verse 20. So in this fifth seal category, there's two sections. You could call section A, persecution, and section B, the abomination that maketh desolate. Now I want you to notice in Luke 21 and verse 20. And let me just give you five statements regarding this abomination of desolation. If you want to jot these down, you can jot them down if you'd like. Number one, the abomination of desolation causes people to flee. In Luke 21 and verse 20, the Bible says, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that, then know, uh, excuse me, then know that the, I want you to notice this word, desolation thereof is nigh. When ye, second person, shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea, notice these words, flee to the mountains. And let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. Now, here's where I want you to just pay attention, okay? You're there in Luke 21. Keep your finger there in Luke 21. Go to Matthew chapter 24. Remember, Matthew 24 is a parallel passage. Matthew 24 is the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus follows the same outline in both passages. Now, up to this point, it's been pretty much the exact same things, word for word. When we get to this point, the abomination of desolation, there's a little bit of a difference. And the reason for that is because Luke 21 emphasizes and has a different emphasis than the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. But we're talking about the same the same time. How do we know we're talking about the same time? Well, if you remember, I know you just got to Matthew 24, but if you remember Luke 21, we saw the word desolation. And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Also, verse 21, then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains and let them which are in the midst of it depart out and let not them that are in the countries enter therein. So in Luke 20, 120, we're told about the desolation. In Luke 21, 21, we're told about people fleeing to the mountains. Now compare that to Matthew 24 and verse 15. Notice what the Bible says. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of, notice the word, desolation. 
all right? Just like we saw in Luke 21, 20, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Notice verse 16, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. I'm sorry, I feel like I'm hearing an echo. If you could help me with that, Brother David, let me turn that down a sec, a little bit. Then let them which be in Judea, notice the words, flee into the mountains. That's what we saw in Luke 21, 21. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. So I want you to compare that to understand that we're talking about the same time frame, the the same section. We saw in Luke 21 that the desolation thereof is nigh, flee to the mountains, let them which are in the midst of it depart out. In Matthew 24, 15, we saw, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. So, Here's number one. The abomination of desolation causes people to flee. And we can see that Luke 21 and Matthew 24 are referring to the same time. Go to Mark 13. Let's look at the same thing in Mark 13. Mark 13 is, again, another parallel passage. This is the Olivet Discourse. And it's parallel to Matthew 24. And it's also parallel to Luke 21. Even though Luke 21 is a different teaching with a different emphasis They are parallel because of the fact that they're covering the same time frame, the same outline. Mark 13, 14. But when ye shall see the abomination of, notice again, desolations, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So we know we're talking about the same time frame, the same step in end times prophecy. And I want you to notice that in Mark 13, this is why the Bible says that we should compare spiritual things with spiritual We should compare the Word of God with the Word of God because as we compare the Word of God with the Word of God, the Word of God is its own commentary and it helps us to understand. In Mark 13 and verse 14, we're given a different wording that helps us see something about this abomination of desolation. Mark 13, 14, But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, I want you to notice this little phrase, Stand where it ought not. Now, the reason that this is important is because when it comes to Bible prophecy and to the most of the Bible prophecy teaching out there, a lot of people are going to teach you that the abomination of desolation is the Antichrist. And that is not necessarily the case. And the reason you need to know that it's important because it makes a difference in regards to how you understand this passage. People think the abomination of desolation, because most of the time people are looking at Matthew 24, and in Matthew 24, it says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing uh, in, in the holy place, and people assume that that's the Antichrist in the temple. But I want you to notice that here in Mark 13, 14, the Bible says, but when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken up by Daniel the prophet standing where, notice it doesn't say he ought not. If it was the Antichrist, that's what it would say. But it says standing where it ought not. It ought not. Why does it use the word? Why does Mark use the word it? And the reason for that is this the abomination of desolation is not a person, but an object. It is an inanimate object. It is referred to here in Mark 13, 14 as it. Let me give you some further evidence for that. Go to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, towards the end of the Old Testament, you've got The big books of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Daniel chapter 11. Remember, we saw in both Matthew 24 and Mark 13 where it said this, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Both Mark and Matthew told us that 
Daniel the prophet taught us about the abomination of desolation. So let's go to the book of Daniel and see what it is that Daniel the prophet said. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Daniel eleven thirty one. notice what the Bible says, An arm shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall, notice this word, place, they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. So I want you to notice, here we have further proof that the abomination that maketh desolate is an object, because Daniel tells us they're going to place it where it ought not stand. It is standing where it should not stand, but it's not a person standing. It's an object that's placed there. They shall place the abomination that make it desolate. Let me give you another uh, proof. Go to Daniel chapter 12. You're there in Daniel 11. Flip over to chapter 12. Look at verse 11. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, the abomination that make it desolate, notice the words, set up. Again, this is not a man. This is not a person. This is something that is being set up. It's something that is being placed. It's something that is standing where it ought not. It shall be, uh, uh, it says there in verse uh, 11, the abomination that make it desolate set up. There shall be 1,290 days. So based off Daniel 12, 11, we know that the abomination that make it desolate is set up. Based off Daniel 11.31, we know that they shall place it, or it will be placed. Based on Mark 13.14, we know that it's referred to as, as an it. So here's what we know. The abomination of desolation is an object, an inanimate object. It's not a person that's standing. It's something that is placed. Go to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. So we saw that the abomination of desolation causes people to flee, Right? When the abomination of desolation is set up, Jesus says, flee to the mountains. If you live in Judea, flee to the mountains. We saw that the abomination of desolation is an inanimate object. It is placed. It is set up. It is referred to as an it. Here's statement number three. The abomination of desolation is not the Antichrist. The abomination of desolation is the image of the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 13. It's the last book in the Bible. should be fairly easy to find. Revelation 13, look at verse 11. Notice what the book of Revelation says. And I beheld another beast. Now, in Revelation 13, and I don't have time to go through the entire chapter. I've done that in the past. But you know that the Antichrist is represented as a beast. And, of course, we understand that he is a beast in the sense that he has the spirit of Babylon. And Daniel told us about the different empires that represented the, the one world entity at those times, the, obviously the kingdom of Babylon itself, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire. All of these had the spirit of Babylon, which Babylon, the spirit of Babylon is the spirit of a one world government. Why? Because all the way back in the book of Genesis, when the entire world got together and united together, God had to separate them by languages and intonations at the Tower of of Babel. And that's where that phrase comes from. Babylon is from the Tower of Babel because from the Tower of Babel, mankind has been bent on this idea of uniting the whole world together. And God says, no, I don't want you united. I want you separated by languages and nations. I, I want you divided into different 
groups. And that spirit of Babel has carried on and since human, uh, really just civilization, there's always been empires that are trying to unite the world together. The first empire was the empire of Egypt. Really the first world empire that tried to cover the civilized world. Then you had the Assyrian Empire. Then, of course, the Babylonian Empire. Then the Medo-Persian Empire. Then Alexander the Great with the Greek Empire. Then the Roman Empire. And from then on, the spirit of Babylon has continued after the Roman Empire. And I don't have time to go into all these details. This is a sermon or a class for another day. After the Roman Empire, the spirit of Babylon continued on into the Roman Catholic Church. And for a thousand years, the popes ruled the world in a time of the, of, of the world known as the Dark Ages. And that, that empire, that spirit of Babylon has continued and continued onto the nation of England for a while when it was said that the sun never sets on the nation of England. And then, of course, today, the spirit of Babylon is alive and well in a place called Babylon, USA. Because it is the United States of America today, which is the world empire that is trying to unite the entire world, that polices the entire world. There's a reason why the United Nations is in the United States of America. We are the Babylon of our day. Those different beasts all are going to culminate into the one beast that is represented as a beast. It's a man in a government system, the Antichrist. Okay? I don't know why I got off on that. I was explaining to you that here in Revelation 13, 11, the Bible says, and I beheld another beast, okay? So the first beast is the one that we all know about, the Antichrist. Here's a second beast, and I beheld another beast coming up, the Bible says, out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. So notice this other beast, or the second beast. He has two horns like a lamb. So what does that remind you of? Of course, we, John the Baptist said about the Lord Jesus Christ, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. So this guy tries to look Christ-like. He tries to look like a lamb, like the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says he had two horns like a lamb. Notice what it says, And he spake as a dragon. So he looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. He looks like a lamb, but the things that come out of, him, out of his mouth sound like a dragon. Who's the dragon? We know the dragon is a Satan. The Bible's very clear about that in Revelation chapter 12. So what is this guy? This guy's a preacher. He looks like a lamb, but he's got the doctrines of devils, 1 Timothy 4.1. And here in verse 12, the Bible says, And he, the second beast, exercises all the power of the first beast. So the first beast is the Antichrist. The second beast exercises all the power of the first beast. Again, I don't have time to go through all the details. Revelation 13.2 tells us that the dragon gave him his power. The Bible says that he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So I want you to get this. The second beast, verse 12, causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast. Why? Because the second beast is the character known as the false prophet. He's the religious leader that is going to cause everyone to worship the Antichrist. Why is that going to happen? Well, if you remember, the Antichrist, remember from Sunday night, the Antichrist is an imposter. We saw that he came on a white horse. 
trying to impersonate the Lord Jesus Christ who will come on a white horse at the battle of Armageddon. Here the Bible tells us, verse 12, And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast. When do they begin to worship the first beast? Notice, whose deadly wound was healed. So the Antichrist is going to come on the scene, seal number one, as a political military leader, going forth, conquering and to conquer, creating this world war, going through these four seals known as the tribulation period. He's going to rise politically, and as a result of that world war, a one world government known as the new world order is going to be established with the Antichrist as the head. He is going to be the political leader of the one world government at that time. But that's not the only concern with the Antichrist. It's not just usually the conservatives, they focus on the new world order and and, and the, the political aspect of it, and that's definitely a thing. But remember, there's a political and a religious aspect. What is coming is a one world government and a one-world religious system. When do we transition into the religious system? Well, remember, he's an imposter. So the Bible says that he caused the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He's going to receive a wound. It's going to seem as though he died or he's going to die, and then he's going to resurrect. Who does that sound like? Sounds like the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's imposter. He's an imposter. He's trying to be like Christ. Notice verse 13. And he, the false prophet, doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of them, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should, notice these words, make an image to the beast. They're going to make an image. They're going to make an idol. They're going to make a statue of the beast, of the Antichrist. He's going to cause them to make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. And he had power, notice, to give life unto the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. What is the image of the beast? It is the abomination of desolation. It is that it, it is that thing that is placed, it is that thing that is put, that, that is put into, that is set up. It is the image of the Antichrist in Revelation 13, is what Jesus is referring to when he's referring, and Daniel, and Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, when they're referring to the abomination of desolation, because they said that it's going to be placed, they said that it's going to be set up, what are they referring to? They're referring to this image, Revelation 13, 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So notice, the image is going to be set up. The false prophet is going to declare the Antichrist, God. And then they're going to cause that everyone should worship the image. Why do Christians start dying? Here's why. Because as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed, and no true Christian is going to worship that image. You say, what if somebody worships the image? Then they weren't Christians. They weren't saved. And in fact, the moment you worship the image, you instantly become a reprobate because you receive the mark of the beast. Look at verse 16. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark. 
in their right hand or in their forehead, and that no man, here's the political government aspect, that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark. So notice how in the New World Order, there's going to be a connection between the religious side and the political side, because you've got to worship the image or you can't buy and sell. You've got to worship the image or you can't be a partaker of our economy. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Notice verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six, or what is famously referred to as 666. So the abomination of desolation is the image of the beast. Go back to Luke 21. Here's the reality, is that I hope you're finding all of this interesting, but I really am only teaching you all of this so that you can understand what Jesus is talking about in Luke 21. Luke 21 and verse 20 is really, I said all that, the abomination of desolation causes people to flee, the abomination of desolation is an inanimate object, the abomination of desolation is the image of the beast that people have to worship, and when they worship it, they receive the mark of the beast, if they don't worship it, they cannot buy or sell, they're put to death without the mark of the beast, and they're put to death if they don't worship I said all that so you can understand what Jesus was talking about in Luke 21 and verse 20. Look at it again. And when ye, notice the second person, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. When ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies. The word compass means surrounded, compassed, meaning that you are surrounded, that you are, they are about you. When ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Now, what is being made desolate? Why is it called the abomination of desolation? Why is it called the abomination that maketh desolate? That's how Daniel said it. Why is it called that? Is it just because it sounds like really evil and creepy? It's called the abomination of desolation for a reason. The word desolation means a state of complete emptiness or destruction. The reason that it's called the abomination that maketh desolate is because when this image is set up, something is going to be made desolate. What is going to be made desolate? Verse 20, And when ye... Jesus talking to his disciples, shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof, you see the word thereof? The word thereof means referring to the thing just mentioned. When you see the word thereof, you say, what does that word mean? It means that it is referring to the thing that was just mentioned. What was just mentioned? When you see Jerusalem compassed with armies. When you see the city of Jerusalem compass about with armies, then know that the desolation thereof, the desolation of Jerusalem, is nigh. The word nigh means near. When you see Jerusalem comes about, know that the desolation of Jerusalem is near. Look at verse 21. Then, I want you to notice, then let ye, is that what he says? Then let you, is that what he says? Now, as we've been going through this passage, I've been almost obnoxiously pointing out to you that Jesus has been talking in the second person to his listeners. 
They're going to bring you before kings and rulers. They're going to betray you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to do these things to you. Don't you worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit's going to tell you what he's been speaking in the second person. Now, in verse 20, he tells us about the desolation of Jerusalem. And then in verse 21, he says, Then let them, them is the third person. He's now not speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples about a third group. Then let them, which are in Judea, flee. Now you say, well, why does he tell the disciples? He's telling the disciples, you, 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 you. And then he starts talking about people in Judea, and he refers to them as them. Why? Because I don't know if you know this, there's not a lot of Christians in Judea. There's not a lot of Christians in Jerusalem. Then let them, third person, which are in Judea, notice the words, flee into the mountains. And let, notice again, them, third person, which are in the midst of it. In the midst of what? Jerusalem. In the midst of what? Judea. Which are in the midst of it, depart out. And let not them, third person, that are in the countries, enter thereinto. Enter thereinto where? Into Jerusalem. He says, look, when you see Jerusalem comes about, know that the desolation, the destruction of Jerusalem is nigh. And any one of them would be smart to flee. Then let them which are in Judea flee. Let them which are in the midst of, her, of it depart. Let not them which are in the countries enter therein. Verse 22. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them, verse 23 that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon you. Is that what it says? No. Wrath upon this people. What people? The people living in Jerusalem. The people living in Judea. And you say, well, Pastor, why is this important? It's important for a couple of reasons. And I'm going to make an application at the end, but let me just give you some, some just practical things, Okay. We are of the position that the rapture happens after the tribulation, before God's wrath. We are not pre-trib rapture believers. We are post-tribulation, pre-wrath. Now, the tendency with people who we reach, who we teach, we show them how to understand the book of Revelation, how to understand Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. And when people get this realization that we're not going to leave before the tribulation, we're going to live through the tribulation. If we live to the end, we're going to live through the four seals, the four horsemen. We're going to live through the fifth seal. We're going to live through this persecution. The tendency that people get is to come to verses like this where it says flee into the mountains and then everybody wants to get this idea. Oh, during the tribulation period, I'm going to go live in a cave. Let me help you understand something. That command is only given to the people who live in Jerusalem. That is not something that God commands every Christian, every believer, to go hide in a cave somewhere during the tribulation. Let me remind you, I don't have time to go through this. You can study this out on your own. The tribulation period is three and a half years. The, the majority of the time is the first four seals. There's no running from that. That's going to happen to the entire world. The entire world is going to be facing a world war. The entire world is going to be facing famines and pestilence. You're not going to run from that. 
It's going to affect you in Idaho or Oklahoma or Texas or wherever you think you're going to go bunker down. It's going to affect everything. Or, or Mexico or Belize or whatever. It's going to affect the whole world. The only part that is going to affect us individually as Christians is that great tribulation period after the abomination of desolation. And the Bible is clear that that time is only going to last 75 days. So people get this idea like, I'll just go buy 75 MREs and I'll just go bunker down in the Sierra Nevadas. But that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that, look, if you happen to live in Tel Aviv, which I don't recommend, then yeah, run to the hills. Why? Because the city of Jerusalem is going to be made desolate when the abomination of desolation or the abomination that make it desolate is set up. Look at verse 24. And they, third person, shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into the, all nations. And Jerusalem shall be, notice, notice the words, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. What does trodden down mean? It means that it's going to be stepped on. The word trod or to tread means to walk upon. What does it mean? It means that during this time, there's a time called the times of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled when Jerusalem is going to be occupied by Gentiles. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. Go to Joel, Joel chapter 2. In the Old Testament, if you have your place in Daniel, remember Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. After Daniel, you have Hosea and the book of Joel. A few months ago, I don't remember, a year ago maybe, I preached through the entire book of Joel on Sunday nights. So some of this might be familiar to some of you, if you remember. But here's what I want you to understand. When the Antichrist is declared God in the abomination of desolation, two things happen. First, the abomination that, they, that make it desolate is set up. The whole world is commanded to worship the beast, to receive the mark. Without the mark, you cannot buy or sell. And if you refuse to worship the beast, you'll be put to death. That is the persecution on believers. The second thing that's going to happen is that the Antichrist is going to make Jerusalem desolate. Now remember, the abomination of desolation is going to be set up in Jerusalem. In the temple, he's going to set up the abomination of desolation, the false prophet's going to. He's going to make Jerusalem desolate at that time. Now, here's what I want you to understand, okay? Tonight we're talking about the fifth seal. On Sunday night we talked about the first four seals or the four horsemen. Tonight we're talking about the fifth seal, which is the abomination of desolation or the abomination that make it desolate. Next time we're in, in, in Luke, we're going to talk about the sixth seal. The sixth seal is what's known as the day of the Lord. It's when the sun goes dark, the moon goes dark, the stars fall, and the Bible teaches, and I'll prove it to you next time we're together in this passage, that the rapture happens. It happens at the sixth seal, Okay. I want you to get this. The fifth seal is the abomination of desolation. The sixth seal is the day of the Lord and the rapture. Okay? Luke teaches that when the fifth seal is open, the abomination of desolation is set up, and Jerusalem is made desolate. Why do we need to know that? Why do we need to understand that? Partly because you need to not have this mindset you're going to run away during the tribulation. Okay? Now, I'm not against you having 
food or whatever. I mean, you know, we, we, we live in California. We might have an earthquake. And it's good to have stuff like that. But look, you say, Pastor Jimenez, what do you think we should be, what are we going to be doing during the tribulation period? And during the, well, look, during the tribulation period, you're going to be living your life just like anybody else. During the four, four seals, we're just going to be living like normal, just with a lot of bad stuff happening to everyone. And then during those 75 days, you know, the Bible says that those of us that have our faith in God, that we will be doing, and, I, and I'm including myself, Lord willing, I'm accounted worthy if I'm alive at that time, that we'll be doing great exploits. Amen. This is not going to be a time to be hiding somewhere, Amen. bunkered down, scared and afraid. You say, well, but, but, isn't, but if you're just out there preaching the gospel, taking a stand for God, isn't that going to bring attention to yourself? You know what's interesting is that the Bible tells us about the armor of God. And the Bible tells us about the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, the gospel of peace put upon your shoes. It tells about the armor of God. And usually when we think of the armor of God, we think of the armor of God from Ephesians 6, and that's the most famous passage of the armor of God. But the armor of God is also taught in the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, there is another piece to the armor of God that is not mentioned in Ephesians, and it is the cloak of zeal. And you say, what is a cloak? A cloak is something you put on to hide yourself. A cloak is something you put on to disguise yourself so that people don't see you. Isaiah tells us that there's a cloak of zeal. You say, what does that mean? I believe what that means is that during the Great Tribulation, any Christian that has great zeal for God is going to be miraculously cloaked by God. I mean, why would God let, and look, I'm not, obviously I'm not God. I'm not going to tell you who's going to live or who's going to die. But why would God let a soul winner who's getting people saved right at the end, being faithful right at the end, why would he let them die? And even if he does let them die, wouldn't you rather go to heaven as a martyr? You stood up for God. Look, I don't want to go to heaven and we're telling our stories. What you do during the Great Tribulation? Oh, man, I preached these great sermons. I got people saved. God miraculously saved me. I made it to the end. What did you do during the Great Tribulation? I stood up for God. I got arrested. The Holy Spirit gave me the words to say that the adversaries could not gainsay or, uh, or withstand. And then they cut my head off and I've got the martyr's crown. What did you do during the Great Tribulation? I hid in Idaho. I, I, I ate beans and cup of noodles like a coward. Is that what you want to say? No. I want, look, do something for God. Have great exploits for God. So we see that. So look, the, 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 the command to flee, the command to flee is for, the, it's for them. It's not for us. It's for them in Jerusalem that are going to be destroyed when Jerusalem make it desolate. Now, here's what's interesting. The fifth seal is the abomination of desolation. The sixth seal is the day of the Lord. In Joel chapter 2 and verse 10, we have one of the most famous passages about the day of the Lord. We're probably going to look at it next time we are uh, going through this passage, but let me just show it to you right now. Joel chapter 2 verse 10. The Bible says, The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord shall utter His voice before His army, and for His camp is very great, for He is strong and executed His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Notice this is the day of the Lord. 
The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. This is the day of the Lord, right? Joel chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Here's what's interesting. It's right before this in Joel, because remember, the day of the Lord is what? The sixth seal. What happens right before the sixth seal? The fifth seal. The abomination of desolation. Usually when we think of the abomination of desolation, we focus on ourselves, the image of the beast, the mark of the beast, the persecution of believers. But there's something else that's going to happen during the abomination of desolation. Jerusalem is going to be made desolate. Notice what Joel mentions right before the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 are the day of the Lord, right? Notice the verses that precede it. Look at verse 1. Joel 2, verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Now, in Joel 2, 1, has the day of the Lord came? No, it's coming. It's near, for it is nigh at hand. Notice what's described. Verse 7. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And they shall march every one on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the walls. They shall climb up upon the houses, and they shall enter in at the windows like a thief. That's verse 9. Verse 10, the earth shall quake before them, and the heavens shall tremble, and the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the Lord and the stars that shall withdraw their shining, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Here's what I want you to understand. In verses 7, 8, and 9, we saw a description of an army encompassing a city and destroying it. Now, the pre-tribbers want to take you to Joel chapter 2 and say, that's the battle of Armageddon. That's the battle of Armageddon, and right after the battle of Armageddon is the day of the Lord. Now they do that, that's their, that's, that's their proof text. Joel chapter 2, the battle described there, they say that's the battle of Armageddon, it happens right before the day of the Lord. Why do they say that? Why do they have to say that? Here's why. Because if they can make the battle of Armageddon happen right before the day of the Lord, then they, can, they, then they can change the timeline. Because the battle of Armageddon happens at the end of Daniel's 70th week. Happens at the end of the seven-year period. So they'll say, see, it's not till the battle of Armageddon, which is at the end of the seven years, that you have the day of the Lord. So it can't be in the midst of the week. That's what they say. And we say, no, 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 there is so much Bible to prove that it happens in the middle of the week, that it happens in the three and a half years. It cannot be. But then they'll say to us, well, what about this battle? What battle is this? It has to be the battle of Armageddon. Well, here's the problem with that. When you read the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19, when we're coming with Jesus on white horses and we're coming with him, thousands and ten thousands are with him. We don't do any fighting. He beats them with the sword of his mouth. He speaks and devours them. We, you and I are not going to be climbing through windows and climbing through walls, killing people during the battle of Armageddon. We're just the cheerleaders. He's going to defeat them with the word of his mouth, and we're going to cheer. So this is not the battle of Armageddon. 
We're not going to be breaking the ranks like mighty men, neither shall one thrust another. We're not going to be uh, uh, climbing walls, run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses, enter in at the windows. We're not going to be doing that. So then people say, well, if this is not the battle of Armageddon, then what could it be? Because it's right before the sixth seal, the day of the Lord. Well, here's the thing. The fifth seal happens right before the sixth seal. And the fifth seal, a city is encompassed about and destroyed called Jerusalem. That's what Joel is referring to. Joel is telling you this battle in Joel 2, 1 through 9, that's not the battle of Armageddon. It's the abomination that maketh Jerusalem desolate. These are not, this is the Antichrist and his army going against Jerusalem. So the army described here is destroying Jerusalem. Notice it happens right before the day of the Lord, which goes perfectly with Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, Revelation 6. It all goes hand in hand. But you don't get that if you focus on Matthew 24 and Mark 13. Nothing wrong with focusing on that. But if you focus on that, then the focus is on the abomination of desolation, the image of the beast, the mark of the beast. The reason that Luke 21 focuses on Jerusalem being destroyed is because God wanted us to know what Joel already told us, which is there's something else that's also happening when the abomination of desolation is set up. And that is that Jerusalem gets destroyed. Now go back to Luke 21. Let's finish this thing up. Because when you teach this, then people ask the question, right? And it's a valid question. Well, wait a minute. I thought the Jews and the Antichrist were friends. Why does the, why does the, the Antichrist turn on the Jews and destroys Jerusalem? Well, the answer is in Luke 21, 22. For these be the days of vengeance. Notice that word vengeance. Vengeance, like the word revenge, Now, revenge is bad when you and I do it. Vengeance is just when God does it. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon, not, God doesn't say my people, not you, the disciples, he says upon this people. What people? The people living in Jerusalem. So let me just explain this to you. And this is just my opinion, and I I think probably most people's opinion that believe these things. And it is this, that the Jews definitely, the Bible is clear about the fact that the Jews helped the Antichrist into power. Because, think about it. What is the first thing the Antichrist does? There's two things he does. Here's the test, all right? Let's see if you pass. Two things he does. He first sets up a one-world government... Then he sets up a one-world religion. First the government, first four seals, then the religion, the fifth seal. Okay? Now think about the people in this world who are all about a new world order. Who are they? It's the Jews. It is the Jews that are setting up the new world order. It is the Jews that run the banking systems that will bring about the buy-or-sell economy of the one world government. It is the Jews that run the social media that connects all of us. It is the Jews that run the normal media that is used for propaganda. It is the Jews that have their hands in everything 
politically, they are all about a one-world government. So when a guy shows up and says, let's make a one-world government, let me put my, uh, my, my capital city in Jerusalem, let me build you a temple, they're going to be all about that. They're going to be happy. Great. Praise God. Good. This is our Antichrist, right? This is our Christ, our Messiah. But here's what you need to understand. The Jews are all about money and politics, but they're not very religious. Even the religious ones aren't very religious. Even like the Orthodox Jews are a bunch of abortion, LGBTQ promoting liberals. So though they're, they're all about government systems and creating one world government, they're not really about worshiping anything but the almighty dollar. So when the Antichrist crosses the line and becomes all religious on them, he's wounded and he resurrects and the false prophet shows up and puts up an image and says, worship the image. The Jews would be like, man, we're not about that. Because look, if you talked, if you research even now, when the Jews talk about their Messiah, they are talking about a political leader that is going to bring them to political greatness. They're not looking for the Son of God. They're not looking for deity. So when the abomination that make it desolate is set up, they're not going to be for that. And you know what the Antichrist is going to do? He's going to turn on them and he's going to destroy them for these be the days of vengeance. At that point, the Antichrist turns on them and destroys them. You say, well, why is that? Okay, a couple things. Let me finish up. Romans 12, 19. You have to turn there. I'll just read this for you. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written... Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Let me give you another verse. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You say, but I thought the Antichrist is bad. The, the Jews are bad. They're all bad. Why? Look, all throughout the Bible, you can't read the Bible without realizing that God will use bad heathen nations to bring judgment upon bad heathen nations. He used the Medo-Persians to bring judgment upon the Babylonians, and then he used the Greek to bring judgment upon the Medo-Persians. God is constantly using the, the sword of the heathens upon themselves to bring judgment. And here's the point. Nations cannot be judged, and people cannot be judged in the next world. So they have to be judged in this world. And the Jews are not going to get away with being a bunch of military, war-pushing just everything that's wicked and, 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 and disgusting in this world, pushing all of that upon the world and not have God bring vengeance upon them. Because these be, Jesus says, the days of vengeance. Now let me just end with this, because you might think, I don't know, anti-Semitic. <laughs> Look, we, we want people that are the ethnicity of Jews, we want them saved. But we're not just going to say, look, the, the, the Jews as a people are wicked people. You say, well, that's anti-Semitic. Okay, how about this one? Americans as a people are a wicked people. Amen. You say, well, yeah, well aren't you loyal to any? I'm loyal to Jesus. Amen. I'm a Christian. I'm not a Republican. God is going to bring vengeance. And look, you say, well, God's going to bring vengeance upon the Jews because of all their wickedness. Let me let you know a little secret. He's going to destroy Babylon too. He's going to destroy America, too, in the end times. That's a sermon for another day. Why? Because he's not going to let us get away with all our crap, either. Amen. 
All the wickedness that America has pushed for all these years is not something, all the abortions is not something God is going to let this nation get away with. You say, this isn't very encouraging. Here's the encouraging part. God is just. God will bring justice. So, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And remember the context. Please understand the context. I know we've been in in the Gospel of Luke for a long time, so maybe it's hard for you to, to remember the context. We are, in the Gospel of Luke, days away from the Jews killing Jesus. We're just a couple of days from Jesus coming into Jerusalem on an ass, declaring himself king, and they're going to reject him. They're going to say, let his blood be upon our hands and our, and our children's. Jesus is teaching about their coming destruction because he says, you're not going to get away with this wickedness. In 70 AD, this temple is going to get destroyed, Jesus says. But that's not the worst of it. In the end times, this entire city is going to be laid waste. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this portion of scripture. And Lord, I realize that this stuff can be kind of heavy sometimes, and I, I get that. But help us to be mature Christians. Help us to understand these things, learn these things, comprehend these things. And Lord, help us to take comfort in knowing that you will bring vengeance upon our enemies. Sometimes in this world, it can be pretty discouraging sometimes when you consider all the wicked people that are attacking us and hurting us and trying to destroy us, and it just seems like everything goes well for them. But help us to remember that you are just. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And Lord, we thank you for that. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song as we prepare for baptism tonight. We have a baptism after the song. Please send your songbooks, page number 415. Page 